All right, I hear it dying down, so most everyone must have shared. Okay, now, we're not going to take time to go through and find out who your most positive impact person is, but by show of hands, um, how many of you said it was like a, a grandparent? I'm just curious. Okay, yeah, one, one, all right. How many of you, it was your parent, a uh, mom or dad? Okay, yeah, several. How many of you, it was an adult in your life, but it wasn't family, like a teacher or a coach? Okay, okay, several hands there. All right, and then what about if it was like a peer? Could be a best friend or maybe your spouse, someone someone that, like right there, same age. Okay, so, several of you there. All right, now what I want you to do is I want you to think about that person right now. All right, keep, the, keep them in the front of your mind. Think about what they mean to you, all that they've done for you. And as you're thinking about that person, I want you to imagine that you're sitting down meeting a new friend. As you and this friend are talking and they're asking you questions just to get to know you, you end up talking about this person, this positive person in your life. You, you share about the, all the difference that your grandfather made, uh, you know, why, why your mother was the most influential person, how your spouse has just really made you who you are today. You share about this. And as you kind of end talking about this positive person in your life, your new friend sits across from you and smiles and says, wow, that's really sweet. Too bad that's all just a figment of your imagination. Now, if you were like me, you'd probably be a little confused. you probably think they're joking. But as you start looking at them, you realize that they're not joking. And they continue to talk. And then they start saying things like, oh, well, you know, I'm sure it's beneficial. It's really helpful in life to think someone like that exists. But your, your grandfather never did those things. Like your, your mom didn't really walk on this earth and, and live that way. You, you don't have a spouse. I, I, I'm, I'm sure it's sweet and wonderful, but I, I'm, I'm so sorry. That, that's, that's not true. That never happened. Now you go from confusion to frustration. Now, now you probably start to feel maybe even a little angry. How likely are you to want to make this a really good, deep, close friendship with this, this other person? Probably not. Because they're denying the existence of the person who's most important to you. Now, this is a preposterous idea. I doubt this will ever happen to any of you. But just for a moment, if you pretend that it does happen, I want you to imagine the emotion you would feel in that moment. The frustration, the anger. That small inkling of emotion helps you understand John as he's writing 2nd and 3rd John. Because the person who had the greatest positive impact on John was Jesus. He, he lived with Jesus for three years. He heard him teach. He saw the miracles. And he saw Jesus die on a cross and rise again from the dead. And yet, there was a sweeping movement happening among the churches that were denying that Jesus ever came physically. That Jesus was just merely an illusion. And that was basically telling John, that his best friend was a fabrication. That will help you understand what we're going to read today and hear why John spoke so passionately, so clearly, so adamantly, insisting Jesus really did come to earth. It's true, and that truth is worth protecting. Two weeks ago, as we began this series, we looked at how to walk and, and to walk in truth. We saw that to John, the truth was very, very important. Just like the truth of this positive person in your life, that's important. You can't just go and deny that. So John was saying that truth matters. We've got to walk in the truth. But if we're going to walk in the truth of the gospel, then we have to do the next thing. And last week, we saw that we are to walk in love. That, that if, if the gospel is true, 
that, that God really does love us and he's displayed that love through the sending of Jesus, well, that just as God loved us, we now need to go and love others. And, and so we are to be lovers. But now this week, if, if last week, if you think about it this way, like if last week was practicing the truth, this week is about protecting the truth. That if this truth really matters, then we're going to have to protect it. And we're going to have to protect it from false teaching. We're also going to have to protect it from those who try to use the gospel for their own abusive leadership. That's what John's going to warn us today. And I hope that it will really encourage you, no matter where you are at in your faith. So as we get ready to turn to 2nd and 3rd John, let me pray, and then we're going to open up our Bibles. So Heavenly Father, uh, I ask now that you be our teacher, that you uh, take the, the things that I've worked on this week, and you just go beyond that. That it wouldn't be about me and my own study and my presentation style, that today it would really be about what your Holy Spirit needs to say to each of our hearts and our minds. That God, everyone in this room is in a different place uh, spiritually. Some here have been following you for a long time. Some people are new in this journey. Some people are still trying to figure out if this whole thing is true. And so, Father, I pray that you would take just the words of one person and you would work in such a way that you speak to the hearts of everyone here, that this really would be about you and your truth and what you call us to. So, Father, help us hear clearly this call to walk in wisdom, that we would hold to what is right and true, and we would be people after your own heart. So, Father, teach us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if you brought a Bible with you, please open it up to the book of 2 John. If you're not quite sure where 2 John is, you can use the little cheat sheet there up on the screen. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, like every week, I've got the scripture up on the screen uh, for you. Oh, and by the way, for all of you who are over here, so sorry about that TV. We are going to replace it, all right? Black Friday is coming up. We're going to get rid of this thing. Yes, uh, sorry, but this, this thing has been a dud. This thing has gone like five and a half years through setup and tear down and ice cold and extreme heat out in our trailer. The thing's still cooking. This thing's been babied and look at it. It's, it's anyway, so it's, it's going away. Uh, we're going to replace it soon. So I apologize to those of you here. Hopefully you don't get a neck strain trying to look over here. Um, but uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, I'm going to have the scripture up on the one screen, and uh, you can uh, follow along there. But I'm going to strongly encourage you to, to get a copy of the scriptures in your hands, uh, because we open this up every single week, because we want you to have the habit and pattern of opening this up throughout the week. Uh, and so if you're practicing it here on Sunday, hopefully that translates over to Monday and Tuesday and on and on. Also, if you have a digital Bible, totally feel free to pull that out on your phone. We're fine with that here, because I'd love for you, your thumb to practice not hitting the Twitter icon like my thumb is used to. Instead, that you would hit the Bible icon and open up the scriptures. Uh, let me read. Uh, we're going to do, we're finishing up today, so we're going to do Second John. We're going to start in verse 7 and read to the end, and then we'll flip over to Third John, start in verse 9, and do the same. Read to the end. So please read silently along as I read aloud. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. 
Now, 3 John, starting with verse 9. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil. Imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. In John's day, uh, there was no finished New Testament. Obviously, he's here still writing it. Now, that meant that the church, in order to be growing spiritually, to, to, to learn more about this gospel, they had to rely on the teaching of the apostles. And so it was living in Jerusalem, hearing the apostles teach directly. It may have been through you know, their, their letters like John or, or Paul and, and stuff being spread throughout the kingdom. Or, or you were learning from maybe pastors, elders who had been raised up in Jerusalem. And, and taught the, about the gospel. And so then they would come to the churches and, and help to lead them. So there were traveling missionaries trying to help disciple the churches all over. Now, it may sound kind of cool to, you know, like to go and learn directly from the apostles. That, that sounds great, but it created a pretty wild world where basically false teachers, uh, power-hungry people, would seize opportunities to, to get in and control churches it was kind of a, a crazy time. And so there were all these philosophies, these doctrines that were bringing brought up and started to spread through the church. And oftentimes, John, Peter, Paul are actually addressing some of these false philosophies through their writings. One false philosophy, uh, one false doctrine was Gnosticism. Uh, the word Gnosticism comes from a Greek word meaning knowledge. In other words, salvation came through knowledge. You wanted to become enlightened. Now, if you were a Christian Gnostic, it was about knowledge in Jesus and the gospel, but it would never be enough. You'd always have to continue to seek out new knowledge in order to become this enlightened person. And many scholars believe that Paul, when he was writing his letter to the church in Colossae, was actually combating Gnosticism, even though he doesn't directly say it, because he, was, he says several things in his letter that seem to indicate Hey, guys, it's not about new knowledge. It's about what you already know. In, in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, he flat out says, That which you received in the beginning, meaning the gospel, so walk in it. Continue with it. Get rooted into this gospel so that you will grow. It's not about new knowledge. It's not about these new festivals. Stick with what you were given because the deeper you peer into this gospel, the more you are to grow spiritually. It isn't about new knowledge. Uh, this week, I was on uh, Google. I was uh, researching, trying to figure out what were some of the, you know, uh, false religions, uh, teachings that were going on at the time of Paul and, and John. And I did this one search. I can't remember exactly what I was searching, but there was a, a, one of the ads. You know, there's usually like three ads links there. And one of them said, the true Jesus Christ unknown to Christianity. Now, I, I figured it was a link to a cult. But here I am studying this week on cults. So out of curiosity, I clicked on it. And sure enough, it was what I would consider a Christian cult. 
And I headed over to kind of their about page. What, what were they really about? And I'm not exaggerating. The page flat out said, the gospel is not Jesus. Instead, the gospel was knowledge of the kingdom of God. Now, in their page, they justified Jesus was a really important person, but this page went on and on and on and on and on. You would not believe how long this thing was. I, I eventually just gave up, but it was very clear through this convoluted path they were leading you through, trying to sound really, really intelligent, but twisting scripture all over the place, that it was all about this knowledge of the kingdom of God. I found it ironic that here I thought Gnosticism was something that Paul and, and John were having to deal with back in the first century. And it turns out that there's still repackaged versions that exist even to this day. So Gnosticism was one thing that was floating around. Another one was Docetism. Uh, Docetism it comes from a Greek word meaning illusion. Uh, there, there were some Greek philosophers that were promoting the idea that all physical material matter was evil, meaning that your human body would therefore be evil. Well, this created a problem for Christians because they believed that Jesus was the sinless son of God. But if all matter is evil, that meant Jesus took on an evil body. And so their way around this was to start arguing that, oh, Jesus didn't really take on a human body. He just appeared. He was an illusion. He just, it just made it look like he had a human body. Uh, you would think that might have just existed for John's day, but it actually continued on for a while. Just 60 years after John wrote these two little postcard epistles, uh, a guy by the name of Marcion came along. Uh, Marcion thought he was honoring Christ when he argued that Jesus was so holy, so divine, that he couldn't have taken on corruptible flesh. And, and so therefore, he argued basically the same thing as Docetism, that Jesus was just an illusion. Well when this whole thing was spreading throughout the early church, the uh, kind of church fathers of the first council of Nicaea stamped out Marcionism because of what John wrote in his letter, that Jesus came physically. See, John would call Marcion, others who promoted Docetism, or those who were promoting Gnosticism, he would call them deceivers. That's what he says there in verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. And then he goes on. He says, such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Now, he doesn't mean the Antichrist as like capital A in the book of Revelation. He just merely means they are against Christ. They are anti-Jesus. They're against the gospel. And John is just passionate about this. And he's speaking against these deceivers because there were a lot of deceivers at his day and age. The thing is, there continue to be a lot of deceivers, even in our day and age. Many of these deceivers have gone on to start their own religion, but many of them don't start out trying to start a religion. Many times they're just trying to use an existing one. And the way they go about things, they end up creating what some people would term a cult. I tried to find some statistics on cults. I, a few years ago, had been told that Iowa had more cults per capita than any other state in the U.S. So I, I wanted to just go and see, is that really true? Try and, try and see the data, or at least see like how many cults are there in America. I, I wanted us to see that there's still deceivers to this day, but I was not finding statistics. I, I found sometimes some lists of cults, but I could not find like, yeah, here's how many per capita, here's how many people. I, I, I couldn't get to it. And finally, I figured out why. Because the definition of cult changes depending on the person. See, some people call a cult a cult, 
based on the behavior of the leaders, of, of, of the you know, core group of people, while others call a cult a cult because of their teaching. As I was studying this week, I uh, stumbled upon what uh, I guess Christians would use the word testimony of a girl who in college had joined up with a Bible study. That Bible study became some of her best friends. Uh, these best friends started to not just study the scriptures together, but about once a week start to worship together, just song and prayer. Pretty soon it became two and then three nights and then four nights. And eventually they moved to another city to be part of some kind of nationwide movement uh, of, of young people that were really passionate about chasing after God. And she loved this group and she felt so close to God during this time. But as the, the group kept meeting more and more and more, some of the group felt like they were hearing directly from God things that needed to be shared with the others. And one particular guy who would sort of be identified as the leader of this Bible study, after one summer away, he comes back and he really felt like God had given him a gift of, you could say, discernment or prophecy. Basically, he said that God gave him a gift of recognizing anyone who had sin in their lives. So it became his role to identify who in their group had sinned so that they could therefore confess it and be made right again with God. What happened was he would identify someone with sin and then that person would be confused because they couldn't figure out what sin they had. And it wasn't until the author of the story shared how she was identified as having sin in her life. And she prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed that God reveal it to her, but nothing was coming out. She couldn't understand what this unconfessed sin was. And because she wouldn't confess, the group ostracized her. The group had actually gone and gotten a, a rental house for the guys and a rental house for the girls. And she's living with the girls and they are ignoring her. No one would talk to her because she was in sin. And it wasn't until later she realized her best friends, this Bible study, had become a cult because it was being controlled by one guy and the behavior of the group made her realize she had been caught in a cult. She didn't call it a cult because of its beliefs. She called it a cult because of its behavior. But this week, as I'm on the internet looking at lists of cults, almost always there's this list of cults because of not, not because of behavior, but because of belief. Uh, maybe it's because they take a key core doctrine like the Trinity or the divinity of Jesus and, and they change it. Or sometimes they get called a cult because of certain practices. Maybe it's their observance of the Sabbath. Uh, it might be, you know, they, their members dress a certain way because of, of certain convictions and they get labeled a cult and it, it's more about their beliefs than it is their behavior. When Leanne and I lived in Denver, Colorado, my extroverted wife took our daughter to the park and she meets another extroverted mom who had a daughter of about the same age. And pretty soon, Leanne and Sophie became really good friends. And within the first conversation, Leanne learned that Sophie was a Mormon. Uh, Sophie had grown up in the Mormon church. Sophie uh, was still a part of the Mormon church and married a guy who'd been on his two-year mission. And, and she and her husband were doing everything they could to raise their daughter to understand who she was as a Jesus follower within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We ended up getting to know uh, Sophie and her husband, and they started inviting us over. We had them over, and, and there was one time where a group of friends were getting together, so they invited us to hang out with them, and it didn't take me more than about three minutes to realize Leanne and I are the only non-Mormons in this entire house. Well, I remember at one point during the evening, I'm just talking with a, an individual, a guy, and I overhear a conversation between two other friends, and one of the guys jokes, oh yeah, but you know, we're just a cult. 
And I could tell he didn't believe it at all because in his mind, he had the same definition as the girl who wrote that article. A cult was about behavior. He did not feel controlled. He was glad to be part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He happily gave his money. He willingly went on his two-year mission. He did not feel like he was part of a cult at all. He was just part of a church. However, many people label the Mormons a cult because they don't believe in key core doctrines like the Trinity. Now, if you went on websites, they would argue that they do believe in the Trinity. They actually call it the Godhead. But as you start studying deeper, you discover that they don't believe that God the Father is spirit, that God the Father is man. That God has a human physical body, that God with his God wife populated the earth, and their firstborn son is named Jesus. Another one of his sons, they named Lucifer. And when God saw the sin on the earth, he asked Lucifer and Jesus to come up with a plan for how they could save the world. And Jesus offered to go and sacrifice himself. Lucifer had a totally different plan. God chooses Jesus' plan. Lucifer gets mad, and that's why Lucifer is Satan to this day. But God has his own body. Jesus has his own body. And then there's this spirit out there that doesn't have a body, but is separate from the Father and the Son. They don't believe in one God, three persons. They believe in, you could argue, three gods. And Sophie and her husband admitted to us that they looked forward to the day when they would be deified themselves, they would be given their own planet to help populate, and they would be a benevolent, loving God who would lead that uh, society. Now, core Orthodox Christianity says that's not biblical. And that's why there are groups who would say the Mormon church, while full of great, wonderful people, so incredibly kind, they would still label it a cult because of belief, not behavior. Now, John does not use the word cult in 2nd or 3rd John, but he does address both types. In 2nd John, he addresses uh, groups that would be considered cults by belief, and in 3rd John, he addresses groups that would be considered cults by behavior. So let's go and take a look at him identifying them and then what he gives us insight in to do. So let's start with 2nd John, and let's look at this idea of groups that would be considered cults by belief. Uh, Again, go back to verse 7. Uh, he says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Uh, if you remember, I mentioned Marcion, uh, the, the guy who argued that, that Jesus was so holy he couldn't have taken on human flesh. Well, when the Council of Nicaea squashed his heresy, they referred to this verse right here. It, either if Marcion's right, then John is wrong, and John's this stuff isn't biblical. But John hung out with Jesus for three years, so they decided they'd probably stick with John, who knew Jesus personally, and not go with Marcion. And so this is what helped squash that docetism, uh, docetic teaching of Marcion. Why was John so adamant on this point? Why, why so crystal clear? Well, I think first it's just from his experience. I mean, he hung out with Jesus. He saw Jesus eat, he saw Jesus sleep, he saw Jesus walk, he saw him perform miracles and touch people. I mean, even at the Last Supper in John's own gospel, he records himself leaning against Jesus to ask, who betrayed? If Jesus was just an illusion, John would have just fallen right through the uh, hologram to the floor. Jesus was real. But But it was more than just his experience, it was also theological. Because John knew that if Jesus was just an illusion, like just a spirit... He wouldn't have died upon the cross. And if Jesus doesn't die on the cross in our place, then we are still spiritually dead. We are dead in our sin. 
And so it was theologically important that Jesus come to earth physically, live a physical life, die a physical death, and rise physically out of the grave. If it doesn't happen, then we have no Christian faith at all. That's why John is so incredibly clear. And that's why he then goes on, verse 8, and says, So watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. (laughs) I think John would have felt like he would have failed as an elder, as a pastor, as a leader, if he had helped get the gospel to this church, helped them understand the centrality of Jesus' death and resurrection, and then to watch them just get caught off into some Gnosticism, chasing new knowledge, or to get cast off, uh, uh, get off into Gnosticism and believe that Jesus was just an illusion. So he's saying, watch yourselves. Hold firm. We're going to get to that here in just a, a little bit. And so these are some of the words that he says. There's, there's a caution here for those who would, groups that would kind of start to become a cult because of belief. Flip over to 3 John. Let's look at cults uh, who are cults because of uh, behavior. Uh, in verse 9, he says this. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Now, this Diotrephes, this is the only place in all of the Bible that he's mentioned. So this is really about the only thing we know about him is what's listed here in these two verses. But it's pretty clear that Diotrephes is all about power. It's about abusive leadership. He won't recognize the authority of John and Paul and Peter and the other apostles because he wants the authority. So much so that if anyone from Jerusalem were to come in to try to help disciple the people in the church, Diotrephes not only won't let them come in, he kicks anyone out of the church who would try to welcome them. It's clear this is not about theology. This is about power. Now, if you really are going to be a Jesus follower. Here at Riverwood, we say that it means you're going to love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. Well, how did Jesus lead? Humbly. We've talked here before about humility, how humility is putting the needs of others before your own. And Jesus exemplified that perfectly. Jesus was the sinless son of God. He did not need to die for his sin. And yet he died in our place. He put our needs before his own. So for Jesus to lead, it isn't about, hey, you guys are to serve me. It was Jesus really coming to serve us. If you've ever heard the phrase servant leadership, it's really an oxymoron because there is no other type of leadership. To truly be a leader is to serve those around you. If you're not, if you are a supposed leader and you're expecting everyone else to serve you, you're not really leading. John is saying, diatrophies, it's a bad spirit. It's not right. He's not leading like Jesus because he's not putting the needs of the church first. He's basically trying to use the church to fulfill himself and put himself into the position of authority. Now, I wish that kind of spirit was just a first century thing. But just like Gnosticism, this thing keeps creeping its ugly head up. Just this last year, a celebrity pastor had to step down from his church. His elder board removed him because abusive relation, uh, abusive uh, tactics were being used. Uh, he was kicking people off staff, firing them uh, almost at will, uh, running elders out who would question him. If someone wasn't part of the church and they actually tried to bring some accountability, he was filing lawsuits against them. 
And then what really brought his downfall was when secret recordings of him planning to plant illegal evidence on someone else's computer so that that person would end up taking the fall and everything would direct towards them and then he would look better. And when that secret tape came out, that's what led to him having to step down. It's it's basically a spirit of diatrophies. If you've ever been part of a church that has had a diatrophies in leadership, I, I just want to say I'm sorry. I, I'm I'm so sorry for the pain you probably felt. It, at first, it may have looked great, and you may have thought they were a strong leader, but it wasn't Christ-like leadership. It, it wasn't love, and people got hurt, and maybe you were one of those. Don't let the bad leadership affect your view of God. Yes, they may have looked like a representative of God, but if they were not revealing the true nature of Christ, the gospel is still true and still good despite their behavior. That's why John says this in verse 11. It says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Another way, in other words, he's saying, look for the fruit. What fruit do you see from the life of this leader? If you see fruit that is about self, you know they're not from God. Because they may have shiny fruit, they may be a a gifted speaker, they may look like a great leader, but basically when you take the fruit off and you start opening it up, you're going to see abuse. You're going to see selfishness. You're going to see anger. You're not going to see love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and the whole fruit of the Spirit. So look at the fruit. What do you what do you see? Let that clue you in. Is is this a church that really is going to be seeking after God and the gospel? If so, how do you see it worked out? Or does it seem to be a church where the leaders are making it about themselves? <laughs> I love what uh, John does next. Verse 12, he starts talking about another individual, Demetrius. He says, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Now, we don't know who Demetrius is. Again, like Diotrephes, this is the only place he's really mentioned in the scriptures. But just in that one sentence, it's like he's saying, all right, Diotrephes, he's doing evil. Don't imitate evil. Instead, do good. Oh, you want to know what good looks like? <laughs> Look at Demetrius. And this guy, everyone speaks highly of Demetrius because he has good fruit. There's something about the way Demetrius was doing things. Now, maybe Demetrius was the guy that brought the letter to, to Gaius. Maybe Demetrius was one of those missionaries who was going to be coming on his way a little later. And so this was like, help prepare them for, for his arrival. We don't know exactly who he was, but clearly he was living some way that everyone said good about him. Because he clearly was showing humility, unlike Diotrephes. So these are some of the things that John talks about in, in groups that would be cults by behavior or belief. But now we need to ask ourselves, okay, so how do we protect ourselves? How do we walk in wisdom? Well, I, I think John talks about that back in Second John. So look at Second John, starting in verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wickedness. John clearly does not like these people. 
Like he, he's saying, don't even greet them. But did you notice what he was saying about how to protect yourself and to, to in a sense, weed these sort of people out? Abide in the teaching of Christ. What is the teaching of Christ? The gospel. Jesus himself said that no greater love has a man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus didn't just teach it, he did it. He went to a cross to die in our place. He was sinless, but he died in our place, a sinner's place, so that we could be made spiritually free and step into this freedom, into a relationship with our God, with our creator. That's the teaching of Christ. He taught it, he lived it, and he calls us to hold fast to it. That's why he said in Matthew 28, at the very end, as he stands on a mountain with his followers, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so therefore, now go, make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. It's all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. So if you want to protect yourself from a group that wants to be a cult by behavior, go to Christ. Because you're going to see the love and humility and grace of Jesus. And, and it'll help you recognize those who are not resonating with Christ. You want to protect yourself from false belief? Go to Christ. Abide in his teachings. Because the more you begin to study this gospel, the quicker you'll recognize the false ones. You turn to Christ. And so that's why we as a church, if we are going to protect ourselves from not becoming a cult, then we need to hold fast to the gospel. If you're a Riverwood partner, would you just help hold us accountable to this? It is so tempting to, to run off into talking about other things that sound really, really good to our culture. And yet so many of those things come and go and they're just fads and they just seem to wind like the wind. Instead, we want to get caught up in the river of Christ that goes a certain direction. And so if, if you're part of this church family, just help us continue to hold to the gospel. Because it is this gospel that, that tells us how to do marriage. It's this gospel that gives us insight in how to go about doing work. It's this gospel that shows us how to do friendships with others. It's this gospel that basically shows us how to live life. So we don't have to chase after the coolest sounding thing out there. We just continue with the gospel. That which you received from the beginning, so walk in it. But if you also want to protect yourself from aberrant teaching or abusive leadership, you've got to help us here at Riverwood protect this church by helping us just have humble leadership. Uh, when Matt was uh, uh, commissioned, uh, just three, was that just three weeks ago? Um, I read to him First uh, Peter 5. Uh, Peter writes this. He says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as partakers in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. In other words, the church does not exist to serve the elders. These elders exist to serve the church. Now, yes, our elder team, we, we make decisions that, that affect all of us. But honestly, as we're trying to make these decisions, we have you in mind. What is going to help us be the healthiest church possible? How can we help you grow spiritually? And how can we help our, our world understand this, this gospel? 
And, and so if you're a Riverwood partner, I just ask that if you see any of us kind of becoming about us, if we start trying to take, take you know, our power and, and use it for selfishness, would you just lovingly, kindly, but firmly just call us on it? Point it out? And, and, and if we refuse to see it and change, bring it to the, the elder team? And, and if we just refuse as an elder team to truly humble ourselves and, and put the church first, then, then you got to bring the Riverwood partners in. Because abusive leadership is a cancer in the church. You see, we are probably not going to run off into aberrant theology. I, I think our theology is probably solid enough that we're going to hold to the cores, to the, uh, to the gospel. So if Satan is going to try and ruin us, he's going to try and bring discord and if he could get leaders to make it about themselves, if he could disrupt that, now he has an opportunity, a chance to try to disrupt the gospel work that God is doing. So yeah, I invite you to pray for our leadership. Find ways that you can serve and be a part of this mission together. But, but would you just also help hold us accountable? Because we are to be shepherds who are an example to the flock, not domineering over the flock. And when you have healthy leaders who are helping us as a church hold to the gospel, you have a church that's protected, that's inoculated from the schemes of Satan. If some wave of Gnosticism tries to come in, we'll be able to snuff it out. If someone comes in and tries to take over leadership of, of Riverwood, we will be able to protect ourselves because our eyes are on Jesus. It's on the gospel. And we'll be able to have fruitful ministry for years to come. If you're a first-time guest with us today, I'm really glad that you made it today. Yes, it's the end of a series. You're probably watching. You maybe heard the first two parts. But I'm glad you came today because you got to hear a little glimpse of who we want to be as a church. And if you're already a Jesus follower, I just invite you. Join on this mission with us. We believe that there's a world out there that desperately needs to hear about Jesus. And so we are doing anything and everything we can to invest in you, to help you love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived so you can live on the mission that God has you and we can be a blessing to this world. So I invite you, join us. If you're a first-time guest and you are not a follower of Jesus yet, I want to say thank you so much for coming. But I've got a different invitation for you. Rather than just try to get part of a church, I, I want you to be part of the church. I want to see you put your faith in Christ Jesus loves you so much. He went to a cross to die in your place. The penalty of your sin was death. But Jesus took it for you. He loves you that much. Would you accept his invitation? Would you accept his sacrifice on your behalf? Would you give your life to him because he gave his life for you? That's the beginning of this journey. So that you don't get caught up with a group that has aberrant teaching, caught up with a group that has abusive leadership, so that you can get caught up in God's group that's going to help draw you towards Christ. But if you're already a Riverwood uh, part of our church family, thank you. I love you guys. Appreciate who you are and who you're helping us to be as a church. Our best days are ahead of us. And that's why we've got to commit together to pray for the protection of this church so that we can have that spearhead into our community to be a blessing and to bring them Jesus. But it means we've got to hold fast to the gospel. We have to have healthy leaders. 
Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would accomplish this. It's one thing for me to say it. Uh, it's another for you to do it. So God, would you protect us through your Holy Spirit? Uh, would you, would you uh, protect our theology? Would you help us not to get caught up in, in anything else other than, than the centrality of the gospel? And, and Lord, help us to not for, uh, confuse the gospel with other things. That, that even if, if uh, other issues, we, we, we realize that we've been in error, we need to, to change, whether it be a, a stance on evolution or a stance on uh, a ministry styles or, or music, whatever it is, if we change those things, that we'd still hold firmly to Jesus. Because it is all about him. I mean, God, throughout the Old Testament, you kept pointing to him. And in the Gospels, you present him. And then through the epistles, you keep drawing us back to him. Because it's all about him. So God, help us to be Jesus-centered people so that we can be a Jesus-centered church. Please, Father, protect this church. Lord, because we believe you have us on a mission to help people out there know you. Lord, I pray for anyone here today that does not know you. That somehow, some way, and a message that was kind of about cults, they somehow heard the gospel. And right now, you've opened their hearts and their minds to who you are and the reality that, that it's true. There is a God who exists, who loves them, who sent his son, who died on the cross for the forgiveness of sin, rose again from the dead to show that he has all authority and now invites us to follow him. Lord, right now, would you help them to confess their sin say yes to following you, that you begin the process of changing their life and restoring your image within them so that they would love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. Lord, I pray for anyone here that is in unrepentant sin, that they've been talking the, the Jesus talk, but privately in their hearts and minds, they're not walking the Jesus walk. God, would you help us to walk in truth? Would you help us to walk in love? Would you help us to walk in wisdom? And wisdom says that we need to confess. So, Father, as we go to the communion table, would this be our time of confession? As we re remember Jesus died on a cross for the forgiveness of our sin, we'd go and take these elements, realizing that Jesus' story is part of our story. And that when we are uh, truthful and we confess our sin, acknowledging it before you, you are just and able to forgive us of that sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we can remember that you continue to wash us and renew us and restore us. So, Father, would you just minister during these next few minutes as we sing, as we pray, as we take of the communion elements? Would you just minister now to your people, drawing our hearts and our minds towards you? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.